Foods. Um, we are continuing our series uh, on the Warren of Fitness, and um, well, I guess you all know now what it's about this morning, right? It's about fuel. Um, I'm the kind of guy that kind of follows the prescription when it comes to the car, because I'm so not good at cars. Um, I think that, like, it's got to be, like, the best fuel and I was only recently where someone told me, actually, some cars don't work well with, like, 95 or 98. You've got to stay with 91 or whatever it is. I don't even know what those numbers stand for. I keep thinking that's the year that it was made, <laughs> right? Like, is petrol really that old? When is it going to get into, the, like, the 2000s, right? But apparently there's, there's something about that. Um, I should know because I am a chemistry major. But anyway, fuel. Fuel. <laughs> so what is so important about fuel? Um, it was fascinating. I, I did some research on fuel, and apparently, without fossil fuels, the world would literally stop. So much is dependent on fuel. And if we just think of our, our society here, now some of us are a little mad and crazy and like to ride their bikes. Well, I think they're mad and crazy. Um, <laughs> I've, I've thought about it. I've thought about, oh, you know, I only live in Nainai. I could get on a bike and come to work. And then I get up in the morning and it never happens, right? Um, most of us, regardless of how good the bike path is, no matter how cool a bike we've got, most of us are just going to get in the car. Why? Because I can listen to my stereo. I'm not going to get wet and cold and tired and sweaty. Um, it's just the nature, right? We are so dependent on fuel. Our cars live on it. But even if you think of it as electricity or if it's petrol, it's still a fuel. It's what's needed to make it happen. So the question I got for you this morning is this. What, in your spiritual walk, how do you refuel? How do you refuel? What kind of fuel are you putting into your body to help you keep going in your spiritual walk with God? What is the full fuel that you're using? Do some of us even realize that we do need to actually refuel? Do some of us even know we need fuel? And if there is, what is it? So, 
I'm going to take you on a bit of a ride this morning. It's going to be a little different from the last few weeks where, you know, I kind of break things down a bit. I'm going to be very biblical this Sunday, not that I'm not other Sundays, but this time I'm actually going to be throwing out a whole bunch of Greek words as well. So there you go. That means it's really biblical, by the way, right? Um, But I'm going to be going a little bit on a roundabout journey, so bear with me. Some of the stuff I'm going to introduce at the beginning, just keep it in the back of your mind because it's all going to come back to it, okay? You with me? Ready? Okay, first verse, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. This is Paul. He's talking to his, his buddies, his church, his friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord in Philippi. He's saying, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There's this urgency it's like salvation's not just a transactional approach. It's not like, I'm safe now, I'm good, I've got a car, I don't need to do anything else about it, right? Now, if you want to keep moving, you're going to have to continue working it out, right? That's what Paul is saying here, continue to work out your salvation. In other passages, in 1 Corinthians, in Hebrews, and 2 Timothy, he uses this analogy of a race. Hey, you've got to keep running, don't stop. There's this motion, this forward motion where you've got to just keep pouring energy into this. You can't just rely on the fact that you are saved. There is a lot going on here and you've got to keep working at it. So where do we find the energy? What's the fuel that keeps us going? I'm going to go now to a completely different passage. This is from uh, Jesus's one big long prayer. If you want to know how to pray, go to chapter 17 of John and just listen to Jesus. But there's a point in here in verse 22 where he says this, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now I bet in this room, not many of us can actually quantify or tell me what that glory means. Jesus is saying to us, I have given them, us, his glory. What does that mean? We have this. But not many of us here could actually say what that is. We don't have the halos to show it off, which would be kind of cool. You imagine if they took photos of us and every one of us had this little yellow bubble around our heads. Hey, we got the glory. Woohoo! It's not that. What is it? What does he mean that he's given us this glory? And why didn't we know about this before? It's fascinating. The Greek word is doxa. He's given us his doxus. It's a fascinating word. Because when we think of glory, we usually think of it in sporting terms. You know, like uh, Richie McCall, it's glorious. We've won the World Cup, glory. But it's not actually a sporting term. It's not winning something. It's being something. The word doxa means emanating light. He has given us his emanating light. And he uses this quite a bit throughout the Gospels. City on a hill shows its light. But let's go back to the Old Testament. 
Remember the tabernacle. For those of you who've read about that, or you remember the series we did a few years ago on the temple. How did all of Israel know that God was at the center? Does anyone know? The Shekinah glory of God, the emanating light of God, came out. In fact, when you see drawings of the temple, especially the tabernacle, there's this light going up to heaven. The emanating light of God amongst the people. Well, guess what we have? So, if you take those two verses together and you think, okay, I've got to run this race, I've got to, get, I've got to work this out, and we've got this emanating light, how does this all work? How does this all work? I'm going to flip us to another story, just to add another layer. You go, are you with me? You all good with this? Keep these things in the back of your mind, emanating light, doxa, because we'll come back to it. The whole running, racing, we'll come back to that. We're going to go to John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3, Jesus encounters a guy. Um, I've kind of paraphrased it, so um, just taking some verses out. He goes, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now, there's most probably reasons why he came at night. Jesus wasn't necessarily a popular guy for the ruling party, right? And this guy is a Pharisee, so he's a teacher. In fact, Jesus takes it a step further. He calls him uh, the teacher of Israel. Like he's actually, you are Israel's teacher. You are the guy. You know everything that needs to be known about God and all of that. Now, everyone in Israel, or this would have been the Jews in Judah, would have had memorized the first five books of the Bible because that's what they did between the ages of five and 12. But the Pharisees would have gone a step further. They would have memorized the prophets. Think about that for a moment. He memorized Jeremiah. That's, that's a bit rough. 60 plus chapters of Isaiah. That's rough. That's how he knows his stuff. So he comes to Jesus, okay, and like a good theologian, he doesn't ask a question, but it's obvious he's looking for something. So his first words are this. He says, um, I think the thing's not working right, but we'll go for it. Nope. There we go. And we've gone too far. <laughs> Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Okay, what's the question, Nicodemus? You're trying to make a point here. Jesus picks up on it right away and he responds. He says this. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, the teacher of Israel is stumped. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about now. This is a guy who's one of the top in all of Israel. And he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. In fact, his response is this. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Dude, what are you talking about? It sounds crazy. I've never heard of that before. What are you talking about? 
And Jesus responds, very truly, I tell you, just to break it down and repeat myself, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Now, the Greek doesn't actually have an article in front of spirit. We just put it there. And we're not absolutely 100% sure what spirit means, but we will break it down. Jesus, from responding to Nicodemus, first tells him you need to be born again. Obviously, Nicodemus doesn't understand what he's talking about, so he breaks it down. Well, you need to be born of water and spirit. Now, when it comes to reading your Bibles, the biggest mistake we make is not putting ourselves in the place of the people who are first listening to what Jesus is saying. We are quick to look at it and say, oh, born again, yeah, because I heard about this born again thing. There was a big craze and, you know, we Christians, we're all born again. And when we think of baptism, when it comes to water, we think of, yeah, it's declaring Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. But that's not what Nicodemus would have understood. That's not what the first century Christians would have understood. The baptism of water that they would have understood came from one person, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. Anyone know who that is? Yeah, it's in his name, isn't it? John the Baptist. It's a big giveaway. But his was a baptism of repentance. His was a baptism of repentance. And that repentance prepared people for what was to come. And that being Jesus. So when he talks about water, I'm pretty sure Nicodemus understood that pretty much clearly. Oh, okay, you're talking about John the Baptist, baptism of water, baptism of repentance. Yep, okay, cool. But it doesn't seem like he gets the spirit part. Because then he goes, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. And then, you know, he comes and goes, how can this be? Like, in my mind, I'm thinking, you, I get the whole water thing, but what's the spirit thing? What are you talking about? And going on in the passage, Jesus actually explains it. He explains it with this story. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That's a direct response to the whole spirit thing. Anyone know the story of the snake? Anyone know where in the Bible that is? Sorry? Nope. 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 Come on, there's only five books in the first. <laughs> numbers! Yes! There is actually stories in numbers, by the way. It's not just about numbers. Okay? Here's the story. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. A few years ago, a number of years ago, I was at this kind of charismatic um, uh, 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 conference and, and the speaker got up and said, oh, I'd love to taste manna. I think that would refresh us all if we had the manna from God. And I'm like, you've got to read numbers because these people thought it was detestable. There was nothing that they liked about manna, obviously, right? It's there. We don't have any bread, we have no water, and now we're stuck eating this stuff that we don't like. So much for manna. 
And so much for God's response because it's like he's just got a negative review on his you know, trip advisor and his response is this. He goes, the Lord then sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. You're like, whoa, God, you just, whoa, slow down. What's going on? Then the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. We spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The second part, this whole born again thing, is actually submission. The, 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 the act of being put underwater is actually scary. You have to submit yourself to the hands of the person who's putting you under. We don't think of it that way today because, well, it doesn't, you never heard of a drowning of baptism, have you? Um, don't tell me you have because that'll freak me out. Okay, but you're actually putting your life into this guy's hands. And with John the Baptist, they're in the Jordan and they go down and then he holds them down and brings them back up. It's an act of submission. Repentance draws you to the water. Submission allows you to say, yes, take me. It's that whole, you know, trick that uh, they do in business, you know, when you're doing a conference or stuff and they want to do a little gamey thing. Oh, you know, stand behind somebody and let them fall back onto you and you've got to trust that the person will catch you. Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's submitting yourself to something else other than you. And that's what the Israelites are doing here. They've, they've repented. Oh, we got it wrong. Moses, please intervene for us. We're in your hands. And so the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and then anyone that was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Does anyone know where the bronze snake pops up again in the Bible? Who who said kings? (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Well done. Yeah, in 2 Kings, it pops up again. Now, in this situation, there's this king, Hezekiah, who comes, he becomes king, and at this point, it's just Judah that's left, right? Israel's disappeared. The northern kingdom's gone. Judah's just left, and they've been in a mess. All the kings have been messing up. They've just been doing their own thing. Hezekiah comes to the crown. He becomes a king, and he rediscovers God. He rediscovers the law. He rediscovers, and they have this big revival, right? And so he does this. He goes, he removed the high place to smash the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles, all these things that were diverting people's attention from God. And then he broke into pieces, guess what? The bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They couldn't let it go. They couldn't let it go of the snake on a pole. Now, does snake on a pole ring a bell for anyone? Yes. The, the Greeks took this image many hundreds of years later and attributed it to their god of healing, the god Asclepius. Today, our health industry all over the world reflects what? But Jesus turns it over, turns it around, And the pole that he is nailed to becomes the healing pole. Because that's the third part. Oh, it didn't come up. 
Oh, there it is. Oh, there's supposed to be a cross on it. Is it the next one? Oh, there's a cross. Ah, oh. anyway. Fail there, Rob. The cross is a place of repentance, of laying ourselves at the foot of it and being healed. It is a place of healing. So when he talks about this spirit thing, this, this change in our lives, because you know it, like I know it, anyone who's healed is a new person. Whether it's a broken arm that, that, that's then healed, whether it's a heart attack that you survive, whether it's a cramp in your leg, that which I'm getting lately. I don't know, the old age thing, is that the thing? Where you're just kind of laying in bed and all of a sudden your calf goes on fire because it's cramped up. And then when it's healed and it stops, you praise God for it. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I'm a new man, now I can sleep. But healing changes us. That's what the cross does. When we repent, I can't do this on my own. Israel couldn't do it on their own. Nicodemus can't do it on his own. No matter how much knowledge he has, no, much, no matter how well he knows these things. We can't do it on our own. So we submit to a force that's beyond us. Who can save us? Who could stand for us? Who can hold us up? And we come to the cross and the blood of Christ heals us and lifts us up. I told you I'm playing this game, Assassin's Creed, which I'm absolutely loving, right? Um, I've just finished Valhalla, so there you go. But there's one instance in Valhalla, which is it's fascinating because the dialogues are what intrigue me the most. There's a scene where one of the guys, you know, these guys are all these Viking guys, and they come to England, and all the English are kind of Christians. And that one of the Viking guys, I don't get these Christians. They worship the tool that killed their god. We don't worship the wolf that killed Odin. And, and I thought, ooh, that's actually very perceptive. But it's a symbol of healing, not murder. It's a symbol of redemption, not death. That's the change that happens at the foot of the cross. So this born again is, a, is almost a three-part process of repenting, of submitting, and of finding healing at the cross. In John 1, 4-5, it says this, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the doxa of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's fascinating. I love the book of John because John is uh, deeply controversial if you're Jewish, by the way. People miss it because we're not Jews and we don't live in the first century. But he's deeply controversial. But he has this way of doing things and it's, it's kind of the duality of John. So before chapter 3, there's a duality that happens in chapter 2. It starts off with the wedding at Cana and then it mirrors Jesus casting out the sellers you know, uh, in, in, the, in the temple courts. 
And there's this dichotomy happening where he's embracing everyone at the wedding, but then he's really just, we don't party at the temple kind of thing. He does it in John chapter 3, because in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, he meets with him when? At night. You know his next encounter? Who is it with? Anyone know? A woman at the well? When does he encounter her? In the day. And what's the reaction of the two? One doesn't get it. The one who should know doesn't get it. The one who you don't expect to know gets it. Night and day. Boom. So what does that mean for us? What's going on here? This doxa, the light of the world, well, we're actually called to be that. But you know, I don't know about you guys, sometimes my light wanes a little bit. I, I can't keep it lighted up all the time. How's that work? Sometimes I just want to be in a room on my own. And if it's going to light anything up, it's going to be lighting up the book that I want to read right now. Don't we feel like that sometimes? Don't we feel burnt? Don't we feel like, oh, come on, God, not today. Let me be. How do we do this? We need to kind of go on. So we'll go on, but we'll answer those in a little bit. Going on in this passage, we get to the famous verse, right? John 3.16. If you've been a Christian for any bit of time, and even if you haven't been a Christian, but if you watch sporting events, you'll always see someone with a sign out there, right? Especially in America. John 3.16. At this point, it's interesting because right up until John 15, Jesus is having this dialogue with Nicodemus. At this point, John, the author, stops. And then he writes his own words from here on. As to kind of like, he's kind of like narrating it. Richard Attenborough style. Or you can just imagine with that little voice in the background. And he goes, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever may believe will have eternal life. This is, for a Jew, exceptionally controversial. For one thing, that word world, world, cosmos, doesn't make sense. Because for the Jew, hey, it's just Israel. We are his chosen people. We are the people we, he loves. The rest of them are just bad. Right? The rest of them, we don't care about it's just about, a, what's this world thing? Why are you interested in the world now? What's going on, God? You can imagine the early Jews really struggling with this passage. Why would God be interested in the world? I thought he was interested in us. Then we've got a whole Old Testament telling us that. What's going on? It's very controversial. But you know what's even more controversial? It's the word Loved. Bella, how many words in Greek are attributed to love? In, Greek? in ancient Greek, yes. Uh, five, or more. five or more. How many are actually used in the Bible? Three. Oh, that's my daughter. <laughs> there are only three. There's a whole lot of them. She's right. There's about five or six Greek words that, that describe love. We in English have one, and then we have these other words that kind of substitute that. It's the same in Greek, but they all mean love, but they mean different types of love. So the first one 
that we have heard of is eros. The second one is philia, and the, and the last one is agape. These are the only three love words that are used in the New Testament to describe love. Now, eros, we can all guess what that means, right? Do you need me to break that one down? The problem with eros, it's not a problem, but it is a love that takes. Now, it's not a bad thing per se, but if we're talking, for example, a sexual love, it's about me. We want to think it's about the partner we're with, and we do, but it is a deeply me-needing love. It's a take love. Philia, on the other hand, is a love that both gives and takes. It's called brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's a love that, that, that gives and takes. The thing about agape love, it's a love that gives. There's no taking. It just gives. This emanating light, this doxa within us, is all about giving. Giving. Think about this. When it comes to repentance, what kind of love does it have to be? When it comes to forgiveness, what kind of love does it have to be? This is not easy stuff. I'm not saying this because it's easy. But that's our challenge. This emanating light, this doxa that we've been given, gives. It doesn't take. There's no give and take here. It's not a contract that we have that if we do this, we get this. It's just give. This emanating light, this doxa in us, is all about giving. And that's our challenge. We're not called to give eros love. We're not called to give philia love. We are called to emanate agape. How easy is that? If anyone says yes, I'll jump on them. <laughs> it's not easy at all. It's not easy at all. The fuel that needs to keep this car running needs to keep us in this space of agape. And it's hard. And for some of us, we need to refuel far more often than we need to. If we're traveling around a lot, if you're out in the world a lot, you need a lot of agape love to keep going. You need a lot more fuel in you. Pastors, believe me, I talk to a lot of pastors during the week and I can tell you, you know, the one big thing we talk, we talk about, when does it ever turn to give and take? Because I'm tired. When I talk to some people in our church, they feel a lot of the times, all I do is give, give, give. When is it my turn to take? I don't say it that way, but that's what we're yearning for. When do I get something out of this? In your spiritual walk, how do you refuel? How do you refuel? What do you do to stop and say, I need to do this so that I can get back out and give? A big part of it actually is you being here. Because part of what church is about, 
Okay, because we've turned that into eros love, a lot of it. What can I take from this? And we've taught generations of kids that church is all about taking, by the way. And then we wonder how the world's gotten to where it's gotten. Well, it starts right here, people. It actually starts right here. When we start thinking, I need this, I need this, I need this in the church, and we don't stop and think, Lord, where can I go give, 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 rather than where can I go take, take, take. And churches are set up today to be these places that allow you to take. And we wonder why we're not refueling. We wonder why we're not walking away feeling, okay, I've got some juice now. Let me get back out there and give. It's challenging. I'm, I'm, I know. Believe me. And it's not easy. There's no one I know that thinks this is easy, which is why God brings us together. That's why discipleship is so important. That's why being in a life group and having people around you that you can just go, Bleh, because they know. But we don't give ourselves that opportunity. We give to God what we want to give, but not the part that really needs to be given. In your spiritual walk, how do you refuel? The last four weeks, I've given you some tools, and the next several weeks, I'll be giving you more tools to help you refuel. They're not things that I want you to just go and do because I'm telling you up front here. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I'll read my Bible, Rob. Oh, okay, I'll pray five days in a row. It's, it doesn't do me any good. But it will do a world of good for you. But this week, we're going to do something a little different. This week, it's going to be about giving. So the challenge I've got for you this week is this. I want you to find two people, two families around you that you've never had over for dinner. I want you to invite them into your personal space and provide food for them and hospitality. You can do it this week, next week. I challenge you. Invite someone over that you've never invited before. Could be your work colleagues. It could be somebody in this room. Let's start with the small steps of giving. And then we can work on the big steps of giving. That is giving your time, giving your heart, giving your, your possessions, giving all you are so that you can be the doxa that Jesus has handed off to us. We can be that emanating light that people from afar can see, dude, what's up with that guy? What's up with that girl? And they might even see the little halo. If that's the thing that's shining, amen. Allow God's light through Jesus Christ to shine in you through agape love. And you've got to work at it day in, day out. Keep working it out. Run the race. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
there is a prize to be won. So don't stop in the middle of the race. Keep running. Keep running. That wasn't too challenging. <laughs> There's some rice smiles. There's a couple of people sitting there like, hmm. <laughs> It's not easy. I'm asking the music team to come up. It's, it's not easy. But it's what sets us apart. You know, the Buddhists, they're looking for that inner light for their own benefit, right? They get the idea of the emanating light. That's nirvana. They're going to get there and they're going to work hard in themselves and shut off the whole world because it's all about them. And it's honourable in so many ways. But the difference for us is we're not about us. We don't do it for our own glory, reaching our own place of exaltation. We do it for Jesus. We do it for God. Because we are his people. And he's handed this glory to us. So that we might be one light here in the Hutt Valley. Amen.